This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. So Jesus is returning from a very exciting short-term mission trip. On the way over, Jesus had calmed the storm that was threatening to sink the little ship he was in with his disciples. And when he arrived, as you recall from um, last week, Jesus demonstrated his authority over the forces of evil by casting out the whole legion of demons by the afflicted man who had been cutting himself and crying aloud among the tombs. And now Jesus is headed west, back to the other side of the lake, back to Capernaum, probably. And as him and his disciples approach the shore, they see a crowd waiting for them. And there are two sets of eyes, in particular, that are very, very eager to see Jesus return. The first one belongs to one of the most significant leaders in the community, a man named Jairus. It's unusual in the accounts of Jesus' miracles that anyone even gets a name. Most of these people are anonymous, but Jairus is important enough that Mark records his name for us because Jairus is just not any ordinary guy. He's one of the leaders of the synagogue. There were no clergy for the synagogues. It was all led by lay people. And Jairus must have been one of the most dignified and respected members of the community to be given the privilege to sit on the church board, as it were. And he was responsible for guarding the scrolls, making sure the scriptures were read, making sure that the worship of God happened every Sabbath. Jairus is at the very top of the social ladder. The kind of conservative, traditional, dignified person who would have been among the most reluctant to acknowledge Jesus and his strange power and teachings. But yet this man, Jairus, is waiting down by the dock. And as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, Jairus rushes forward and falls on his face before Jesus. This is not something synagogue leaders do. This is not something that members of the board of directors do. But Jairus is a desperate, desperate man. His daughter is dying. Now, I can imagine being a parent with a very, very sick daughter. You would not utter the word dying lightly until all hope had been lost. She's not just sick. She's not just ill. His daughter is dying, and she's sinking fast. Her pulse is weakening. Her white face is lying against the pillow. The professional mourners are on standby, and Jairus is at the bedside with his wife, looking down at their only daughter about to be torn from them. Clearly, all medical resources have been exhausted. There's nothing left to happen, but for their little girl to die. And it's especially tragic 
but she's 12 years old. Because in the ancient world, she was just on the cusp of getting married and starting a family. And here's this flower just beginning to bloom. And it's about to be ripped up by the roots. Jairus and his wife are already grieving the loss of their daughter. And they have one hope left. Jesus, this strange prophet, this wonder-working man of miracles, is returning. And I would think if I was standing at the deathbed of my daughter, I would be extremely reluctant to leave that room. I would not want to miss the passing of my little girl. But Jairus is so desperate that his wife pushes him out the door down to the lakeside to meet Jesus, where he falls on his face before the master and pleads with him, my daughter is dying. Please, please come help us. Just lay your hands on her, Jesus, and I know she will be well. He is abandoned all the dignity of his office. All that is put to the side. There's only one concern he has, that Jesus would touch his daughter and the healing power that Jairus and his wife have observed and heard about would flow into their little girl and bring her off her deathbed. He has one hope, one last hope, and that is in Jesus. And it's rather wonderful that Jesus says nothing. Verse 24 records, So Jesus went with him. So Jesus went with him. As soon as this man meets Jesus and falls in his face, no questions from Jesus, no objections, no concerns about the schedule for the day being tossed to the wind, Jesus immediately, filled with compassion, follows Jairus to his home. Because pity on the dying is no interruption to Jesus' schedule. This is exactly what Jesus has come to do, to roll back the powers of sickness and death. So Jesus and Jairus and the disciples and a whole crowd of people start streaming up from the lakeside to go to Jairus' house. It's a big crowd, and you can imagine them buzzing with excitement, They have seen miracle after miracle after miracle. The lepers cleansed and the demonized freed and the lame walking. And now, yes, we get to see one more thing, another thing to add to our little punch card of miracles that we got to witness. Something really cool and really exciting is about to happen. So there's this huge crowd surging up from the lake. Jairus is, you can imagine, half trotting. He's looking at his watch. The sand is running out on his daughter, and he is politely but impatiently trying to get Jesus to his house because his daughter is dying. But Jairus was not the only one with a pair of eyes eagerly waiting for Jesus to return. He's desperate for his 12-year-old daughter, but there is a woman who is desperate because of her 12-year-old illness. She has no name in this story. She has no money. She has no social status. She is on the bottom of the social ladder. 
but she too is waiting for Jesus. And Mark tells us she had a terrible condition. She'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And this is clearly some gynecological condition, some menstrual bleeding that is causing her a great deal of distress. And she has spent all her money on doctors. She's a medical bankrupt. She's drained her accounts, and she's gone from doctor to doctor to doctor to try any kind of potion, any kind of ointment, any kind of herb, any kind of operation, anything that could possibly cure her of this condition. Because it's not just a physical issue. Most likely, she is unmarried, or if she was married, she would probably be incapable of having intercourse with her husband. She's almost certainly childless. And in the ancient world, for a woman to be unmarried and childless meant she had no identity, no meaning, and no purpose to her life. She was almost dead while she was alive. Not only that, her bleeding meant that she was ritually unclean. You can go back to Leviticus chapter 15 and read about the particular laws of um, purification for menstruating women. And the fact that she, it wasn't just a monthly thing for her, it was a continual thing for her meant she was continually unclean. That meant she was not allowed to go to the temple. She was not allowed to participate in the joyous festivals of the people of Israel. She was not allowed to touch other people lest they became unclean. If someone lay on a bed she had been lying in, unclean. If someone sat on a chair she was sitting in, unclean. This woman is ritually speaking an outcast from the people of God. She's physically, socially, economically, and religiously devastated. So it's no wonder that she is desperate for someone, anyone, to heal her. The word Mark uses for her suffering is the word for a whip or a scourge. This is not just a mild illness, an inconvenient chronic condition. She is under the curse, under the plague. Her life is miserable. Now, this, this is one determined lady because surely after 12 long years going from doctor to doctor to doctor, you would think that all hope would have been lost, that she would have just given up in depression and discouragement. Not only that, but this woman is physically anemic. She must have been fatigued all the time. But she is a determined lady, and she knows that Jesus is in town And she is going to approach him and get some kind of blessing and some kind of healing from him. See, she is a dying woman. The blood that sustains her life is literally draining from her body. This is why she's unclean. The the most unclean thing in the Old Testament is a corpse. That is the number one thing that's unclean. And all the other different kinds of uncleanness, uh, um, impurity, relate to that. So 
when you lose your bodily fluids in sexual intercourse or in your monthly period, that's a sign that the forces of life are leaving your body, and that makes you ritually unclean. And so this woman is dying already. There's really two dying people in this story. But she has heard about Jesus. She has heard about Jesus, and no doubt her ears would have been pricked for any new doctor, any new physician, any new surgeon, any strange new experimental cure on the market. And so she has heard about Jesus, and she is determined she is going to see him, to touch him. And she thinks to herself, she reasons within herself, if I can just just touch his clothes, I will be healed. If I can just, just reach out and brush against his garment... There must be some kind of power there that I can access. Now, this woman, unlike Jairus, she lacks honor. She lacks honor. She cannot approach Jesus directly at the center of the crowd, meeting him from the boat. For her to touch Jesus, she feels, she needs to sneak up on him from behind. She's trying to shoplift a miracle. That's what she's doing. She's a little spiritual pickpocket just sneaking up behind Jesus, trying to get some kind of power, some kind of spiritual benefit. And so she squeezes her way through the crowd, pressing against people. Remember, she's impure. She's making all these other people ritually unclean. But she is determined to get to Jesus. And as the crowd is heading up toward Jairus' house, she elbows and nudges her way through the crowd until she can see Jesus just ahead of her. And she reaches through a couple bodies and her fingertips just brush against the fringes of Jesus' garment. And immediately, when that contact is made, she feels well. She doesn't have to look down and check. She knows the flow of blood has stopped, and she has been instantly made free of her suffering. She's been freed from this scourge. And you can imagine, she was filled with amazement and joy. After trying dozens and dozens and dozens of cures, her hope descending each time, to her amazement, when she touches Jesus, she is instantly and completely made well. And quickly, she backs up against the crowd and tries to slip out of there unnoticed, holding on to her little healing. She tries to slip away. But at the very same instant that this woman perceived she was healed, there's someone else in the crowd who perceives what happens. Everyone else is completely oblivious to what has happened. This is the most anonymous, secretive miracle Jesus ever performed. But Jesus also perceives that a healing has happened. He knows that spiritual power has gone out from his body to someone. And to Jairus' dismay, Jesus holds up his hand, and he stops the crowd. Jairus must have been bouncing from foot to foot, wondering what is going on. And Jesus turns around, and he asks the crowd, Who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? And the disciples are flabbergasted that Jesus would ask such a silly question. Everyone's been shoving into Jesus and jostling him and bumping him. What on earth is Jesus talking about? But Jesus ignores them. Who touched my clothes? And his eyes search the crowd. And there's one person who has been slipping away who freezes in her tracks. 
and she knows she has been found out. And Jesus wants to speak to her. Now let's stop a moment and ask, why is it so important for Jesus to meet this woman? Why is it so important? The miracle has happened. She's been healed. Jesus is in the ambulance, as it were. The siren's flashing, rushing to the hospital. Why is Jesus so concerned to meet this woman that he is even willing to risk the death of Jairus' daughter? Jesus does not want to be treated as a spiritual ATM. Jesus is not a bank machine that we can go up to and press in our code and make our withdrawal. Jesus is not like that. Jesus cannot be detached from his power. I just want my miracle. I just want my healing. I just want my sin and my guilt taken care of. I just want my problem solved, but I don't want to deal with Jesus. No, Jesus will not allow that. Every one of Christ's miracles is meant to lead to encounter with him. Not just power, presence. Jesus wants to know and be known by those he heals. And so this woman approaches him. She only wanted a something. But what she needs is a someone. And not just anyone. Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. You see, Jesus is the tree of life. Jesus is the tree of life. And the only way for this woman and the only way for us to escape the clutches of death is to go to him and stay with him, to have a new relationship of faith with this person. We can't just grab the fruit and run. We must belong to Jesus. And this woman must belong to Jesus. And she approaches him, and she is literally shaking with fear. Just like the disciples in chapter 4, when the storm was stilled, they thought they were afraid then. The disciples were even more afraid when they saw Jesus command the wind and the waves to be stilled in a moment. Because to their terror, they realized they were dealing with no mere mortal. This is not just an ordinary prophet. This is not even just a man remarkably filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We are in the presence of the divine itself. And this woman realizes that as a very impure person, she has put her finger on something unimaginably holy. The impure has touched the holy. And if you know your Old Testament, you know what happens when the impure comes in contact with the holy. The impure gets consumed. It's burned to ashes. That's why there are all these fences and barriers for impure people from going into the temple and into the holy of holies. The holiness will destroy what is impure. But when she comes to Jesus... He doesn't destroy her. He doesn't blast her. He speaks to her with great kindness. 
he addresses the social outcast as daughter. Isn't that lovely? These words of respect and affection are bestowed by Jesus on this woman. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She's not going to be destroyed. She's not going to be destroyed. Here's what Horace Hodges and John Poirier write. One can, one can approach the holy, this healing teaches us, you can approach the holy in an impure condition if you have the necessary faith. The holy still destroys the impurity, but faith preserves the one bearing impurity from destruction. And we could correct that even to say it's not just her faith. It's Christ himself who allows this impure woman to touch him to have the impurity destroyed without being destroyed herself. This is what Jesus came to do, the Holy One of God, to have a contagious holiness that is more powerful than our impurity. See, there is an exchange happening when she touches Jesus. There is a power that flows out of him. This healing and every healing come at a cost to Jesus. There's something leaving Christ, a power leaving Christ to go to this woman. And when she touches him, yes, she receives his holiness and his power and his divine life and healing, but he is also taking on himself her ritual impurity. Jesus is going around taking up everyone's impurity and uncleanness. He takes on our sicknesses and our diseases and death itself. Isaiah 53, what more important text in the Old Testament? He took up our pain and he bore our suffering. That's what Jesus' miracles are about. He's not just demonstrating amazing power. He's taking on our death and our sickness and our sins himself. This woman was under the scourge. And those whips will no longer fall upon her, but they are going to fall upon Christ himself. And the blood is going to flow from him in her place. Jesus is stepping into death to absorb and exhaust its power for us. That's why he tells her, your faith has healed you. Let's be clear, this is not positive thinking. He's not congratulating her for imagining a better future for herself and actualizing that. Clearly, this woman had exhausted her own resources. She was unable to heal herself, and no one else was able to heal her. But her trust in Jesus brought health to her body. And yes, there is a lot to criticize in this woman's faith, isn't there? She was treating Jesus in quite a superstitious way. There's a lot of magical thinking involved. Yes, a lot of imperfection in her faith. But it was faith. It was faith. And that faith, imperfect as it was, was enough to conduct the power of Jesus into her. Charles Spurgeon said that the slightest connection with Jesus will bless us. The slightest connection with Jesus 
will bless us. Is that not good news this afternoon? That is really good news, that Jesus is not waiting for us to reach a certain level of faith, collect a certain number of spiritual points to get our lives in order and to work up a certain strength of faith in our own hearts before we finally have generated enough spiritual power to save ourselves. However weak and imperfect and filled with flaws our faith may be, if our anemic little fingers have reached out and touched even the fringes of Jesus' garments, life will come into us. And that is good news for everyone here who's been a Christian for a long time and feeling discouraged at their level of faith. And that is very good news for anyone here who is curious about Jesus, who's heard about Jesus, and is wondering, what do I need to do to make myself ready for him to become a Christian? All you have to do is reach out with the finger of faith and entrust yourself to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will make you alive. And that is very good news. Well, it was good news for everybody except for Jairus. Because while this is happening, he's burning with impatience, looking at his watch, wondering how his daughter is doing. And our text tells us that even while Jesus was speaking, even while Jesus was engaged in this warm, kind, wonderful, affirming conversation with this woman, blessing her and sending on her way with peace, even while Jesus is talking, the messengers come running down from the house. And Jairus hears the words that he had been dreading. Jairus, your daughter is dead. She's dead, Jairus. She's dead. And you can imagine Jairus's heart sinking within him. The news he had been fearing has happened. The clock has run out. Time has expired. And healing, healing is no longer possible. And in Jairus's mind, in the mind of everyone else, surely death marks the frontier of Jesus' power. Surely death marks the frontier of Jesus' power. Thus far and no further, Jesus. I got my victim at last. You took too long, and now she is in my cold hands. No one had ever seen Jesus do anything for the dead up to this point. They had seen amazing healings and remarkable demonstrations of Jesus' power, but nothing for the dead. But Jesus overhears what these messengers are saying, and he immediately looks to Jairus, and he says, Jairus, eyes on me. Look at me. Ignore these people. Don't listen to them. And Jairus Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Jairus. Only believe. Only believe. You are not going to get the healing you came for, Jairus. Jairus' daughter will not get healed. It's said that everyone who came to Jesus for healing received it, but not his daughter. 
There's no healing for his daughter in this story because Jesus has something much greater than a healing for this little girl. And Jairus' sinking heart, the cold fingers of fear wrapping around it, has come across a horrible barrier to his faith. And it seems like hope is lost and there's no need to bother Jesus any longer. Time to get on with the grieving. But Jesus takes Jairus by the arm and steers him up towards the house. And as they enter into the courtyard, there's a tremendous commotion. There's weeping and there's wailing. And these are not just the family. They are professional mourners who were hired. In fact, Jewish tradition said that even the poorest person must have at least two flutes and one wailing lady. Even if you were destitute, you had to have at least two flutes and one wailing lady for the appropriate mourning rituals. There was a certain dignity, a certain cultural way things had to happen. And clearly, these people are, they're just waiting for this girl to die so they can step in and collect their fee and do their thing. Can you imagine that, having a job as a professional mourner? If you're a kid and you're really good at crying in those days, there could be a career made of that, to go to people's funerals and just to weep really loudly and to dance in an exaggerated way and to, to carry on and play your flute and make all this noise and commotion. And Jesus marches into the courtyard and he silences everyone and says, the little girl isn't dead, she's just sleeping. And these professionals, these people who are very used to death, burst into laughter. Jesus is childishly naive in their mind. These are the undertakers of their day, the people who deal with dead bodies all the time. They know the difference between someone who's dead and sleeping. And Jesus clearly doesn't. But he kicks them all out of, their, out of the house, gets rid of everybody, and Jesus goes into the room with the mom and the dad and three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And there is the corpse of this girl lying on the bed. And Jesus reaches out his hand and touches her. He grasps her hand. And this is a terrible taboo in Judaism. Touching a corpse would make you massively impure. But Jesus has no hesitation. He takes this little girl's cold, limp hands, and he says two words to her. Talitha kum. Little girl, little lady, it's time to get up now. And don't you love it that Jesus speaks to her in her heart language, in Aramaic? These two Aramaic words in this Greek gospel must have been recorded because they were so striking to Peter and the other disciples. Talithakum, time to get up, little lady. And the moment he says this, life returns to her body. And she stands and she walks and she eats, and she's not just brought back to a, a weak, fluttering pulse. Oh, wait a second, there's some activity on the monitor. She's not brought back to a shuddering breath. There's no long, months-long recovery in intensive care. She is immediately and completely and totally better. And this little girl is bouncing around the room with energy and vitality. And Mark tells us, at this, the people in the room were completely astonished. 
Yes, of course you would be. You would be absolutely boggled to have seen this happen. You would have been stunned and confused, and then you would have just started crying with joy to have your little girl restored to you against all expectation. And then Jesus says, tell no one. Don't tell anyone. Now, I don't know how Jesus expected this to be a secret. People had, he had said, she's sleeping, he closes the door, and she comes out alive. That must have been quite surprising to all the professional mourners waiting to collect their fee. The funeral's been canceled, people. This little girl is alive or awake. Which is it? What's going on here? Now, why is it that Jesus doesn't want the news to go abroad about this little girl? It's his greatest miracle yet. Nothing Jesus has done so far can surpass raising a little girl from the dead. And if it was me, I would be on Facebook right away. I'd be on Twitter and I'd be on Instagram broadcasting everywhere. I just raised someone from the dead. Can you believe it? I mean, Jesus is missing out on a massive publicity opportunity with this miracle, isn't he? But Christ in his miracles is always far more concerned with the real people who are suffering than impressing the crowds. When he calmed the storm, it was to rescue the drowning disciples. When he sent those 2,000 pigs over the cliff, it was because he had pity on this man, naked and bleeding among the tombstones. And when he healed the woman with the issue of blood, it was for her sake, not her own. And the same with this miracle. Jesus has compassion on this little girl, and he has compassion on her distraught parents. And he has pity on the whole human race. Jesus has compassion on all of us, subjects as every person in this room is, to death, and to the grave. We may not be on our deathbed, but all of us, like this bleeding woman, have the forces of death at work in our bodies, and we are being carried inexorably toward the grave. And maybe in a long time, and the wonderful gift of medicine and technology may delay that for many years, but they cannot Stop us eventually from our heart beating and our brain ceasing to function, from us being put in a box and lowered into the ground to rot and decay and disappear. That is the horrible destiny of every single human being. That is why Jesus came, to rescue us from that curse and from that scourge. See, we have two very different people in our story, Jairus and this woman, two very different people who never would have associated with each other in their little town, but they had one thing in common. They were helpless against death, and they reached out to Jesus. Their faith was imperfect. Of course it was imperfect. Our faith is always going to be imperfect. But they 
encountered Jesus. And despite the limitations of our faith, there is no limitation to his power. It's not our faith that saves us. Faith in ourselves, as great as a mountain, cannot even move a mustard seed. But faith in Jesus, as small as a mustard seed, can move the very mountains of death. Death will have the last word. Death will have the last word. But Jesus gets the word after that. There is resurrection power at work in the world. Death is not the end for those who entrust themselves to Jesus and his power. Death is not the end. There is life for everyone who puts their faith in him. And we are going to conclude today, as we must conclude with 1 Corinthians 15, the greatest chapter in the New Testament, which we should read and meditate on often. And there Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Then, Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray and thank God for that victory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for having compassion on us men and women and girls and boys who are subject to the curse of death. Thank you for your compassion on this lost human race. Thank you for sending your son to take that curse on himself and to bring us life and joy and freedom. We pray that you would fill our hearts with faith, O God, to reach out and touch Jesus afresh. We thank you, Lord, that when you raise us from the dead like this little girl, you also offer us something to eat. And we thank you for this meal spread before us in Holy Communion that we are about to partake in, this bread and this cup by which you sustain the faith of very weak people. Thank you that our faith is not something that we must generate within ourselves, but that it is a gift of your Holy Spirit. We are so dependent on you, Lord. Come, be with us now. Strengthen us weak people by the life of your risen Son. In his name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.